This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A mother's unconditional love places her between justice for her daughter and leniency for her son. What can a person do when they find themselves caught between both sides of the criminal justice system? This is the Charity Lee Story. Megan, I hope I can now start sleeping after we cover this case. I know. You told me that that you read the book on this one and it really kind of haunted you. This was one of those for you, huh? Mm-hmm. And you know I love to read before bed. So this is the last thing I would think about every night before bed for, uh, I'd say, at least a week. And it's really, it's a very tragic story. However, there are themes of forgiveness and resiliency and redemption. And that's really what attracted me to this story. I can't wait to hear about it. And you promised me you'll read the book. Yeah, you gave me the book. The only reason I haven't read it is because I didn't know the story and I knew you were going to cover it. And I really wanted to hear your version of it. And then I'll go and do the deep dive in the book after. But I'm absolutely going to read it. And I'm hoping that you might consider it for one of your Patreon book clubs. I was just about to say that. I definitely will, depending on how I feel about it, too. Okay. Charity was born in October of 1973 in Savannah, Georgia. She grew up outside Atlanta and her family was very wealthy. Her father owned a lucrative trucking business and her mother handled all the accounting and the business. So it was somewhat a family business, but they did very well. However, her parents, James and Kyla, had a bit of a rocky relationship and they would end up separating when she was just a baby. The two would reconnect, though, and remarry about six years later. So they had this romance where they just decided one day they were going to go to Vegas and they got remarried. Basically like a whirlwind romance. Exactly. Reconnecting, which sounds like it would be a really great thing. However, less than two months later, in March of 1980, James, Charity's father, and now Kyla's new husband, was murdered in their home. Now he had been shot several times in the back of the head. It really looked like execution style. Oh my gosh, did they catch who did it? Well, as if that's not traumatizing enough for her child, her mother was the prime suspect in the murder. It's not clear all of the evidence that they had against her, but it was reported that Kyla was slated to take over the family's successful business if anything had happened to her husband. And being that they had only remarried 57 days before the murder... Some people thought that seemed suspicious. However, we know that's not enough to go forward with the trial. So they did have a little other evidence, which I guess we could say is a little stronger. There was a witness who came forward claiming that Kyla had discussed arranging a killing with him. So after an investigation, Kyla was arrested and charged with murder for hire. Wow. And Megan, obviously, this is a very serious charge, one in which she was facing a life sentence for if she was convicted. The trial was widely covered and sensational because they were upper middle class family in this quiet neighborhood. And we know cases like this get a lot of attention. But this case ended with an acquittal by a jury. So did then is she allowed to then resume living with her mother? So during the time of the because she was in jail for about six months. Yeah. So this is hard on Charity as a six year old. She went to live with other family members. Charity was living with her grandmother at the time. And then she did go back to Charity once this whole ordeal was over. But as one could imagine, the family was never the same. Now, Kyla and Charity had a pretty strange relationship. 
it's unclear if this was the result of her father's death and the subsequent trial or if they had issues prior to that. But it is known that Kyla was a single parent, of course, because the husband was murdered and she worked a lot. And Charity reports feeling that she was just unloved and that her mom didn't really like her. Her mom reported working very hard to provide for her family and she provided a very nice life. And Charity was always well taken care of with various nannies and babysitters and they had housekeepers. But Charity really just wanted to spend time with her mother and her mother was just not often there with her. As the years went on, Charity was having a really tough time, so much so that by her teenage years, she was using drugs. She was out partying a lot and she became addicted to heroin. We're talking about age 15 or so. Mm. Now, rather than helping her get clean, Charity's mother kicked her out of the house. I think it's important to note that this is according to Charity. Okay. So we don't we don't know exactly how things went down, but according to Charity, her mother gave her her mother gave her a hundred dollars and told her she could either use it to find help or to score some drugs and find a place to overdose. Okay. So some would say this is tough love. And you and I both know that sometimes it gets to this point when a loved one is addicted to drugs. So I don't think we can judge. But again, this is according to Charity anyway. Oh, yeah, of course. Charity says she spent half of the money on drugs and she spent the rest on gas to get to a halfway house in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, I think it's impressive that she was able to do that for herself, that she was able to use part of the money to actually try to get help. Yeah. And luckily, she was able to get clean, although she says it was very hard. She experienced intense cravings. She was very depressed and she struggled a lot. Charity also enrolled in college at the University of Tennessee. But again, she says this was not easy and she often was depressed and she had a lot of anxiety and it was hard for her to really get up every day and to keep going. Charity reports that she made a deal with herself during these tough times. If she still felt this awful in three months, she would overdose and end it all. Luckily, as it would ultimately save her life, about two months later, she found out that she was pregnant. And she says this is what, in fact, did save her life. On October 10th, 1993, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. At this point, she had moved back to Texas and she had left Tennessee so she could be closer to family when she had her child. She named her baby boy Paris, which is Greek for a defender and also the name of Helen of Troy's lover in Greek mythology. Oh, I remember. Amy, what about the baby's father? We don't know too much about Paris's father. What is known is that he also used drugs heavily, and he also was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia at some point. Okay. Charity says that having a child changed everything for her, and she, at that point, never felt the need to use anymore, and she was clean. After she got clean, she had this new baby. She moved to Alabama with Paris, and that's where she met a man who would later become the father of her second child. Her daughter, Ella, was born on April 12, 2002. At this point, Charity and her two children were living in Georgia. Things did not work out with Ella's father, so she left with the two children to go back to Georgia, where she had more ties. I wonder how she's supporting herself this whole time. She was working a lot. She was a single mother, but she did work a lot. And, you know, I'm not positive. She doesn't speak much on this, but she did come from a family with means. Mm -hmm. So perhaps she had money from when her father was murdered or her mother had given her some money. Okay. Charity and Paris were both overjoyed by this new addition to the family. At this point, Paris is seven years old. Okay. So they're moving around a lot because we went from Tennessee to Texas to Alabama to Georgia. And then a few years later in 2005, the three of them moved to Dallas, Texas to be closer to Charity's mother. 
Now, recall, Charity had a very strained relationship with her mother. However, she thought it would be good for her children to have a grandmother in their life. And I think she probably needed some help because she was a single parent. And now she had two children to care for. And her mother had recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. So it's, you know, I think it was a mix of all these things that led her to go back. Outwardly, the family seemed to be living an ordinary life, but as a single mom, Charity really struggled to provide for her family, and she was still struggling to stay clean. When Paris was just 11 years old and Ella was two, she did relapse using cocaine. Now, Paris, who was 11 at the time, had a particularly hard time with the relapse because when Charity relapsed, although Paris was only 11, he kind of was... According to him, he had to take care of his younger sister. So he's starting to build some resentment. I mean, he adored his baby sister and he did well in school and he had some friends. So he seemed to be coping with things okay. But a closer look would show that Paris started exhibiting some very worrisome behavior around this time. There was one incident where Paris broke one of Ella's toys. And so Charity gave Paris a timeout. Paris was very unhappy with this and grabbed a knife from the kitchen. Whoa, that's scary. Yeah, he took the knife and ran out of the home and he would not drop the knife. Charity and Charity's mother, Kyla, ran after him. And it was an event that definitely stuck with Charity. And in hindsight, I think it it makes her wishes she had done more. But Megan, I think she did what any mother would have done. She tried to get Paris help. Okay. He went to an inpatient facility where he spent about a week. Oh, yeah. And then he was released and it's not clear what the treatment plan was. But what you're saying is she sought mental health treatment for him to try to figure out this and deal with the problem. She did. And during this time, she actually moved the kids back to Alabama to try to rekindle with Ella's father. That didn't work out. They went back to Texas. So there was a lot of moving around. There were a few short romantic relationships that Charity had. She got divorced twice, um, having marriages that lasted less than a year. It doesn't sound very stable in terms of the relationships and the moving around a lot, which is hard for kids. Kids need stability. Yeah, so there's a lot of instability. There's a lack of structure. And so I don't think anyone would be surprised that children would have trouble with this type of environment. But I don't think anybody was prepared for what would happen next. On February 5th, 2007, Charity went to her waitressing job at Buffalo Wild Wings just outside of Abilene, Texas, where they lived at the time. Now, this was Super Bowl Sunday, so it was a very busy night for her at work. Her two children were with a babysitter. The babysitter was a 21-year-old college student who had watched the kids in the past. I'm not sure any other information as her identity has never been released. The babysitter and the children went out to dinner and then they returned home where Ella watched some cartoons and Paris went to his room to complete his homework. Once Ella went to bed, sometime between 8 and 9 o'clock, Paris stayed in his room doing his homework. And then around 10 p.m., he came out of his room and convinced the babysitter to leave. How would he convince a babysitter to leave them alone? I don't know, Megan. This has not been really explored in any of the sources But let's just give the babysitter the benefit of the doubt. 13 is not that young, so maybe he was allowed to stay home alone once Ella went to bed. Either way, this will be a decision, I think, that the babysitter will forever regret because a short time later, a call was placed to 911 from the home. I accidentally killed somebody. You think you killed somebody? No, I know I did. I feel so messed up. Is she bleeding right now? No. Is she bleeding anywhere? Yes, she's bleeding all over the bed. Because I stabbed her. What you just heard was 13-year-old Paris saying 
that he killed his sister and he had stabbed her and there was blood everywhere. Yeah, I, that that was shocking. Yeah, so you hear him, you know, he sounds like he's very upset. He's crying. He says, I feel so messed up. Now, the 911 dispatcher told Paris to move Ella from the bed to the floor to start performing CPR. At first, he seemed to resist a bit, saying that she was already dead, but eventually he did comply. Now, you can hear on the call that the dispatcher tells Paris to give Ella 30 chest compressions at a time, and Paris can be heard counting out the compressions while sobbing uncontrollably. But when officers arrived on the scene, they were surprised to find that there was almost no blood on the floor. The police were very quickly able to say that Paris never performed the chest compressions because Ella was lying on her side, and the fact that she had stab wounds on her back, she would have leaked blood onto the floor during the compressions. And there was, in fact, no blood. So you're saying he faked the compressions on the phone call? He did. Yes. That would be very diabolical. What else happened when the police arrived on the scene? So Paris was the only one in the home and Ella was deceased. It was clear that Paris was the one responsible for this. Now, how did this happen? Well, Paris told officers that he was sleeping next to Ella when he woke up to a horrifying scene of a demonic version of her with a pumpkin head and she was engulfed in flames and she was laughing at him. And he says he got violent and angry and he started stabbing her at this point. In other words, he's claiming that he had a hallucination. However, from the very first reports, detectives doubted this story. I would doubt the story too. I, I mean, and how, I'm sorry, how old is Ella? Is she four? She's four years old. Oh, jeez. Okay. Paris was brought to the police station, and at first he stuck to the story of hallucinating, and that's why he murdered his sister. He would also appear to cry at times, but there were never tears, and investigators again were suspicious. From the moment they got on the scene and during their interrogation, the suspicion only grew. Meanwhile, Charity received a visit from two officers while she was at work, and she was told that Ella was hurt. I'd imagine they did not want to deliver this news to Charity at her work. Um, that would not be an appropriate place to tell her what's happening. So I'm sure that they wanted to wait for her to uh, be in person. Megan, I agree, but she begged them to take her to Ella. And that's when they told her, quote, you can't go. She's dead. Okay. Well, is she, I mean, you know, they had to say what they had to say. Her next question was, you know, where's Paris? Is he okay? Right. Oh, gosh. And they said, we have him. And of course, she asked about the babysitter and she was told that the babysitter was not at the home. No one was at the home except for Paris and Ella. I don't think that anything could have prepared Charity for what was about to happen regarding the admission that her son would make. About a day after the murder, Paris recanted his initial statement about hallucinating and confessed that he killed his sister intentionally. He admitted the babysitter left. He grabbed a kitchen knife, walked into the bedroom where Ella was sleeping, and proceeded to beat, choke, and stab her 17 times. <sighs> Why would he do this? This brother who supposedly doted on his little sister. Well, according to his own admission, he killed Ella because he wanted to punish Charity for relapsing. Oh, my gosh. The ultimate act of revenge. Oh, no. And as Paris will say, he knew that murdering Ella would hurt Charity in the most profound way. She would lose both of her children because killing Charity alone wouldn't inflict enough pain. But if he killed Ella, then she would effectively lose both of her children because he would go to prison and Ella would be dead. Of course. And, you know, further investigation would prove Paris's admission that he never hallucinated and that he intentionally murdered his sister. 
investigators discovered that Paris had called a friend to say he had hurt his sister. Now, this call lasted nearly six minutes. And when he hung up, he waited another two minutes before calling 911. So this is, again, further evidence of his intentions. He did not want help for his sister. He wanted her to die. I'm very shocked about this statement. I just want to know, did he, when you say he talked to a friend, do you know, did he ever mention to a friend before this or a relative or anyone else that he had any plans to harm anyone, including his sister? No, but we come to find out that the word homicidal ideation was in documentation that no one really knew about. Remember that hospitalization he had for wielding the knife? But that didn't become known until it was too okay, late, unfortunately. Also, the autopsy report noted that there was a cluster of deep stab wounds on Ella's chest, along with numerous cuts to her fingers, wrists, and forearms, indicating that she fought back. Now, this doesn't really negate the hallucination story, but this next part does. The wounds were not deep. They were shallow jabs and punctures that suggested that he had been slow and methodical and not frenzied and uncontrollable the way that one would be if it was resulting from a hallucination. Even more disturbing, Megan, Paris later admitted that he spent the evening of the murder watching violent porn like S&M, bondage, and sadism, and he had also been searching for snuff films. He also had sexually molested Ella. Now, further evidence corroborates this confession. His semen was found on the bed and inside of the shorts he was wearing at the time of the murder. Oh, God. I mean, this really exacerbates the situation. This is a sexual assault of his sister and a murder. Paris later told Charity that he had decided to kill Ella to hide the sexual abuse. But at other points, he said the motive was revenge. And the reason I point this out is because it goes from... I did it because I was hallucinating to I did it because I wanted to cover up the sexual abuse of Ella. And then he says he did it because Charity relapsed and he wanted to get revenge on her. When Charity confronted Paris with the information about the sexual assault as well, he actually laughed and said, it took you fucking long enough. Oh, wow. He's I mean, he is really angry at his mother. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not going to believe this next part, Megan, but as traumatizing as this all was for Charity, she made the very intentional and very difficult decision to stick by her son. She says, quote, when Paris was born, I promised him two things. I would love him no matter what, and I would be the best mom I could be. I have never failed to keep the first promise, and I know I have never once stopped loving my son. It's very hard for us to understand this, but I'm sure that she was carrying a tremendous amount of guilt and felt that, you know, her actions contributed to his actions. And, you know, when you have a child, I mean, we we saw this in the Amy Bishop case, too. Do you remember in Amy Bishop, she shot her brother and her mother stood behind her, you know, right away, accidental or not, even though it was different. There are parents who are certainly mm-hmm. make these tough decisions. What do you do when it's your child, right? You know? Yeah. Those are areas I think we'll explore more also when we get to the discussion part. Charity was also in a unique, horrendous position. As the victim's mother, she was working with the prosecution. But as the defendant's mother, she was also working with the defense. Yeah. Now you have one side fighting for the most extreme charges and sentencing, while the other side is fighting for leniency. Mm. In fact, Megan, on the day of Paris's sentencing hearing, Charity didn't know which side of the court to sit on. So a bailiff grabbed a chair for her to sit in the middle aisle. Oh, wow. Charity says that while she wanted Paris to be held accountable, she also wanted to know what was wrong with him, how this happened, why this happened, and how she could help him. 
Now, recall, Paris was only 13. He was just a child himself. Was he tried in a juvenile court then? Good question. So his case was adjudicated in a juvenile court. Okay. And he pled true to first-degree murder. Now, true just simply means that that's an admission or judicial confession to delinquent conduct. We know that in juvenile cases, there's different wording, but essentially a plea of true is similar to guilty, a plea of guilty. Right. Paris was sentenced to 40 years with the first five being served in a juvenile facility. As promised, Charity continued to stand by her son. She would visit him monthly, in fact, still does. They would have regular phone calls, although Charity admits that she is scared of him and he does not know where she lives and everyone in that facility has strict orders never to let Paris know where his mother resides. Wow. She has good reason to fear him. Oh, yeah. Remember I said she brought up the topic of the sexual assault at one point? Yes. During that same visit, he tried to choke her. As she says in her memoir, he, quote, slammed the table into me, pinning me against the concrete wall behind me. He cut off my air. I was in shock and paralyzed. I thought I was going to die there. Then he pulled the table back. I caught my breath and he slammed it into me again. This wasn't the only time he committed a violent act against Charity during one of their visits, but Charity continued to visit her only surviving child. So Charity sought intensive counseling, but it was two years after the sentencing. Now, the reason she says she waited two years is because the defense team told her not to seek mental health services because the records could be subpoenaed and it might be able to work against her child. So once again, she's really putting her children or her only surviving child before her needs. She was diagnosed, not surprisingly, with severe post-traumatic stress disorder and major depressive disorders. With one child murdered and one child in prison, Charity settled in Savannah, Georgia, and made the decision that she needed to dedicate her life to helping others. As she says, she could not let this tragedy define her, and she didn't want, as much as she loved her son, she did not want Paris to win. And her being destroyed would mean that Paris won. He took away Ella, and he killed, you know, he essentially killed Charity. So Charity wanted to really rise above and make something of this. So she wrote this incredible memoir that we've been talking about. And we'll talk about more. During this time, those two years when she wasn't seeking mental health treatment, she drank very heavily and she journaled. She journaled a lot. And because of her journaling, that's why we now have her memoir, because her memoir is pretty much her journal in real time, what she was going through during this whole process. Got it. In 2011, she founded the Ella Foundation, which stands for Empathy, Love, Lessons, and Action. And it essentially helps people affected by violence, mental illness, and the criminal justice system. She also went on to have another child, a baby boy that she named Phoenix. Yeah, the Phoenix is the sign of like rising above. Mm. So she named her son Phoenix. Unfortunately, Phoenix was born with a severe heart condition. He did survive, but he had to have open heart surgery when he was less than a week old. Oh, my goodness. This is really unfortunate for Charity because she's been through so much already. But luckily, her son, you know, although he did struggle with some medical difficulties, he he is a healthy boy. He's about 10 years old now. Oh, good. As many have trouble with, and I don't think we have any right to judge anyone's decision, but she lets her boys communicate. So she lets Phoenix write and sometimes speak on the phone with Paris from prison. And she says that she's showing her son an example of how unconditional love and forgiveness looks and behaves. And I give her so much credit for that. I give her credit for that too. She does at the same time say though that, you know, when her son Paris is released from prison, she will go into hiding with her son Phoenix. 
other than starting this foundation that I mentioned, Charity is also a certified crisis interventionist, a certified anger management specialist, a certified theft addiction specialist, a certified seeking safety facilitator, and she has also developed numerous evidence-based programs for those who have been affected by violence. Again, she has a really unique perspective here because she's been on both sides. And as Mm -hmm. Charity says in her words, quote, it doesn't matter what side of the crime scene tape you come from. Trauma is trauma. And I think that the goal after trauma should be relearning how to live in the world again. Some sources say that she's even pursuing a master's degree in counseling. Good for her. I mean, she took the most tragic thing that could ever happen and she's done some really positive things with it and I really admire that. Paris has a release date scheduled for February of 2047 when he will be 53 years old. However, he is eligible for parole in 2027 when he would be just 33 years old. Wow. I do not think he will be granted parole um, given the depravity of what he did, but He has mandatory release in February of 2047. And experts have advised Charity and her son to not have contact with Paris when he gets out because they fear that he will still be violent towards them. In 2017, uh, there was a documentary called The Family I Had. Have you heard about this on ID? You should watch it. I think you would really like it. This is from 2017. And Paris sat down and spoke candidly. And he said, quote, I chose to do my crime and I take full responsibility for my crime. And I wouldn't say there was a predisposition to what happened. I'm not insane and I don't suffer from any mental illness. He also sat down with Piers Morgan for an interview, which is extremely disturbing. This was in 2019 for a TV movie called Psychopath with Piers Morgan. And he said, quote, for many years, there was just this sort of hot flaming ball of wrath in the pit of my stomach, and it was directed at my mother. And one of the reasons why I chose to kill my sister and not someone else is because I knew that by doing so, I could hurt my mother in the worst possible way, because I had always known as a child that the most devastating thing to do to my mother would be the loss of one of her children. And I found a way to take away both of her children in one fell swoop. That leaves me with chills. He's clearly very well aware this is not somebody who was insane at the time of his crime. He was very well aware. And you had asked earlier, was he evaluated? And of course, there was many, many evaluations um, when he was first arrested and tried and sentenced. So there were several different forensic psychologists, and they all agreed that Paris had all the necessary traits to be labeled a psychopath. We spoke about this before, but Psychopathy is not in the DSM. It is not a diagnosis. It's in fact just a set of traits. I guess we could say the most similar diagnosis would be antisocial personality disorder. Would you agree, Megan? Yeah, I think that um, the term used to be psychopathy, but I think people use antisocial personality disorder now. And I just feel like psychopathy is the most extreme form of that, I guess. There was a big issue, though, with diagnosing Paris while he was in juvenile prison. I know you know a little bit about psychopathy because you do a lot of work with serial offenders, but do you know why they had issue with diagnosing him when he was a juvenile? Well, it's conduct disorder as a juvenile, all right? I mean, psychopathy, the scale was scored on adults. So I think as a juvenile, there's different characteristics of conduct disorder that you can't yet attribute to psychopathy. So as you mentioned, you know, number one, there's no accepted standardized tests for juveniles. 
But also, some psychologists argue mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible to diagnose this in children and even young teenagers because their brains are still developing and normal behavior at those ages could be misinterpreted as psychopathic behavior. And that can have far-reaching implications. Mm-hmm. But as he got older, right. he was classified as a psychopath. So how do we classify psychopathy? Original hair psychopathy checklist, or as it's known, the PCLR, consists of a 22-item checklist of personality traits and observable behaviors. Mm -hmm. And it's intended to be completed through semi-structured interview along with a review of other adjacent information. Mm-hmm. So, Megan, I know you've done a lot of work with this. I know that on the scale, there's superficial charm, there's mm-hmm. narcissism, lack of remorse, parasitic lifestyle. What are some of the other traits? Manipulativeness, promiscuity in relationships, lack of affect. There's also a couple of factors that are like static, like if you had earlier, like juvenile arrests, and then if you had violations of probation or some type of other community service sentence. Is there a link between psychopathy and high IQ? I don't know. I should know that, but I I can tell you there's no link between IQ and sociopathology, but with perfect psychopathy. So with perfect psychopathy, I probably would guess you're looking at elevated IQs when you compare that with those who are sociopaths. So Paris had an IQ over 140, which is considered to be genius. So is this connected to some of these traits of psychopathy? It's up for debate. However, when you look at the planning and the manipulation involved, I think it does show through. I think his high level of intelligence does show through. I think just based on some of the statements that you told me, the remarks that he made, I could even have assessed that he has a high IQ. Yeah, and he clearly understood the consequences of all his actions. And this does get us into the theory part. I think you mentioned it, but I see rational choice theory here as a primary explanation. I mean, it's hard to attribute an irrational crime like this, and especially one done by a child to rational choice theory in which there is a series of choices that are made. There's planning that goes into it, even if it's short-term planning, long-term planning. But honestly, the way he describes it and the way he carried out the plan and the reasoning why, I see rational choice theory as well. Which isn't surprising that you could attribute rational choice theory or a plan to someone who even is antisocial, um, because antisocial personality doesn't prevent someone from rational choice planning. But yeah, it it sounds Mm -hmm. like a lot of planning went into this, a specific target, you know, a specific outcome that he wanted. So yeah, I I would have to agree. Uh, Simply by him considering what would hurt my mother the most. And by saying she will lose both children because one will go to prison and one will be dead, it's clear that he was thinking about the consequences of his actions. And he, to him, the feeling of hurting his mother just outweighed everything else for him. Did he ever show remorse about what he did to his sister? Did he ever feel bad about not what he did to charity? But do we know anything about, you know what I mean? Like, did he feel bad about what he did to Ella? It's hard to wrap my head around the, yes, the need to hurt his mother outweighed his love for his sister. Um, But Mm -hmm. from what you've said, I haven't heard much remorse yet. And I would be real concerned later down the line um, when they go to release him. It seems he's well aware of his actions. He he can put, you know, everything into context. But what I haven't heard is how sorry he is about what he did to this poor little four-year-old girl. That's a good question, Megan, because as much as I researched this case, I wasn't looking for statements of remorse, but I don't recall hearing them. That doesn't mean they're not there. They're just, we're not at the forefront. If they were, it didn't stick out to me. I didn't hear any of that. I think at least you, you read the memoir. I mean, at least there would have been Mm -hmm. something about, 
It doesn't sound like he has remorse, which really concerns me for him later down the line. No, the only time he showed any emotion, according to what we know from Charity, is Charity informed him that she, in fact, had a child and the child was in the NICU and needed open heart surgery. And during that phone call, she said that was the only time she heard him cry because he said that she didn't deserve more pain. Okay. However, he could have been faking it. You know, who knows? But either way, it is interesting and very telling that he shows no remorse. And that leads me into, you know, he has to be released at 53 because once you max out, unless he commits another crime and gets additional mm-hmm. charges with additional, you know, time to spend. But that's pretty young. And I'm worried. I mean, I'm way more concerned about him getting released in his 30s or 40s. You know, yes. I don't love 53, but at least at that age, he will have spent such a significant portion of his life in prison um, that we know, you know, when we deal with the lifers, the ones who are spending 30 years or more in prison, a lot of times at the end of that, they really do come out rehabilitated. I worry about him of definitely, but I'd be I'm way more concerned about him getting early release. I hope I kind of hope that does not happen. The problem is, Megan, can you rehabilitate someone with psychopathy? No, that is the problem. You can't really right? is no. we could. I just hope that um, when he's released, he's able to be managed. You know, maybe, you know how I mentioned that Charity said he cried in that phone call. Maybe he is being medicated. Maybe he is in therapy. So maybe he it was true emotion. So I can only hope because, you know, I don't like the idea of life without parole for juveniles. And our system has weighed in as well. And in Miller versus Alabama, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to sentence juveniles to life without parole anymore. And I do agree with that ruling. Yeah, it was just without the possibility of parole. It doesn't mean they have to get it, but they have to have the option. And I do agree as well. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. He's the yeah. candidate for it, but I do agree with the sentiment. Wow. Unbelievable story yeah. today, Amy. Any other theory that you see going on here? Like, could there be a biological explanation? I was just going to say that. Okay. Because if you recall, Charity's mother may or may not have killed her father, but Paris's birth father, although he wasn't in Paris's life, he he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Well, okay, you have that, which it doesn't sound like that was what happened. But was Charity, did she get clean right away when she found out she was pregnant? Because one of the thoughts I had was if she was still using while she was pregnant, There could obviously have been um, some biological damage here. Yeah, I'm not sure, but that's a tricky one, too, because we would never want to blame charity. But no, of course not. Of course not. And then you have to also you've heard about the, you know, people. uh, This has been discredited in our field, Mm -hmm. I think, mostly. But the crime gene, is it passed down from person to person? Yeah. Well, people can have a genetic predisposition to certain behaviors, such as aggression, lack of empathy. But there's no single evil gene or warrior gene Right. There could be variations of genes that can predict antisocial behavior. Yes. Agreed. And it's possible that existed in this case, too. So I would urge you all to support the Ella Foundation and you can find them at the and Charity's memoir, How Now Butterfly, is a great read. And it really has lessons of forgiveness and resiliency that I really think everyone should read it. I'm certainly going to pick up that memoir. I'm certainly going to pick it up right off my nightstand now that you gave it to me. I'm going to read it. I'm going to look at the documentary and really appreciate you bringing this case, which had a lot of important themes, like you said, about redemption, resiliency, forgiveness. I learned a lot and uh, I, I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Amy. We just have one question from a supporter that we're going to answer quickly here. This listener says that the one that hit her the hardest was the Gabriel Fernandez story. 
You know that story, right? That was a story about the mother and stepfather who abused the sons. Of course. It's okay, so much. Gut-wrenching. And, yep, the documentary are... on Netflix is tough. For me, I think it's Joanne Parks. That case has always stuck with me. For those of you who don't know that case, you can go back and listen to it. It's one of our, what, probably within the first 20 cases we covered. But Joanne Parks was wrongfully convicted for the arson and murder of her young children. And I just couldn't imagine losing all of your children and then also being convicted of killing them. It can never, ever get over Shannon Christian and Chris Newsom. The double murder of the two teenagers. That was very, very, oh gosh, it's just very painful. Very, it was so, yeah, so it was cruel. And it showed such a lack so of violent, humanity. So Yeah, I can never get past that one. I still think about it. And it still really hurts my heart, that one. Actually, and then that makes me think of, was it Shanda Scherer, the other one? Yeah, that was a rough one, too. We've had, a, I mean, we've had a couple, look, you know, the, the cases that we discussed, some of them are really, really difficult and they stay with you. All right. Well, thank you so much for that question. And thank you to all our listeners. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode come from How Now Butterfly, the memoir written by Charity Lee, The New York Post, The Family I Had on ID, and The San Antonio Current.